you'd stand with me as we turn to God's Word this morning, we're going to open up to the 26th Psalm. Pastor Bruce continues the series, Summer in the Psalms. Passage of the 26th Psalm this morning, you can find it in your pew Bibles on page 316. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers, and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just pray this morning that through your word, God, you might uh, change our hearts. God, you might mold us as we face times of mistreatment. And uh, God, that you, would, uh, that you would ingrain your word into our hearts and minds uh, to change us this week. In Christ's name, amen. As we continue in our series, Summer in the Psalms, we're going to look at perhaps one of the more practical and relevant psalms that deals with the topic that I'm sure each and every one of us have dealt with in our lives, and that is the subject or topic of overcoming mistreatment. The dictionary defines mistreatment as being cruel or thoughtless toward a person, an animal, or even an object. For example, your little brother's habit of picking the cat up by his tail is an example of mistreatment. It could be as simple as mistreatment of the family car. It might include driving it over potholes intentionally. That's mistreatment of a car. While mistreatment of one's children could be as serious as abuse. If you don't treat someone well, it can be called mistreatment. And because we live in a fallen world, a, a sinful world, might even say a selfish world, every one of us will experience to some degree, to some form, some level, we will experience mistreatment. Uh, we've all been done wrong, have we not? We've all been stepped on by someone. Maybe that describes your life right now. And, intolerable work environment with an over-demanding and under-appreciating boss. It may be a husband or wife. It could be even a parent or child who takes advantage of you even when you treat them kindly. It may be a friend who has turned against you due to a misunderstanding of something you did. In fact, such feelings of this mistreatment, of being done wrong, of, of being stepped on, can kind of grind away within our souls. 
It can grind away at our peace in life, our joy. So severely, we even begin to wonder, how can I even go on? It's all we focus on. It's what we deal with, we think about, we dwell on. How many have heard the riddle, what does a grape say when it gets stepped on? Nothing. It just lets out a little whine. That's how most of us feel. It's how most of us respond when we get stepped on, you know, accidentally, not too hard. We'll let out a little whine. But how do you respond when you get stepped on intentionally? How do you respond when you get stepped on unfairly? How do you respond when others do you wrong intentionally? Remember the last time you felt wrong? Unfairly criticized, wrongly accused, the, the subject of gossip or slander? How did you respond? Well, here in Psalm 26, David's pen kind of pricks our conscience like a needle. His words touch a sensitive nerve and exposes our heart when wrong. Consider just for a moment David's own situation here of being done wrong. Many Bible scholars believe that David's mistreatment may have been either when King Saul hunted him and persecuted David out of jealousy, causing David to run and hide for his life, or perhaps the mistreatment was caused by his own son Absalom, who conspired against his father David and tried to overtake his throne, again resulting in him running for his life, hiding for his life. So believe me when I say if anybody here was mistreated, if anyone was done wrong, if anyone was stepped on unfairly, listen, it was David. And yet what we're going to see in this psalm here is that he shows us how to do right when you've been done wrong. See, I told you at the beginning this is a very practical, very relevant issue that David's dealing with. Because who here hasn't been done wrong? Who here has not been stepped on? Now, in doing right, when done wrong, David begins this song with sort of a warning. And the warning is this. It's coming up on the screen. It's in your notes if, you're, if you want to take notes and follow along. And here's the warning. When it comes to mistreatment, don't become bitter and don't backslide. That's the warning that David starts with here. David begins with this emotional plea in verse 1. Look what he says again. Vindicate me, O Lord. Why? For I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. The whole thrust of the psalm has to do with some undeserved wrong that David was enduring and his determination, his resolve to trust God without slipping or without wavering. Generally, a slip ends in what? A fall. And David was determined here, in spite of being done wrong, stepped on, mistreated, he was not going to fall spiritually in his life. He was not going to become bitter inside. He was not going to backslide from the Lord and in his relationship with the Lord. Did you catch how David begins the psalm? Vindicate me, O Lord. In other words, go ahead, God. I invite you. Judge me and see that I've walked in my integrity. 
By his own admission here, David was in the right. He had done nothing wrong. David says, I've walked in my integrity. No, David, he's not claiming moral perfection, but he is claiming a righteous heart. Now, immediately we, we see a valuable lesson here. A very valuable lesson. And that is, walking in integrity does not guarantee a life without mistreatment, does it? Listen, you can be a faithful Christ follower. And that does not mean you will avoid mistreatment. In fact, just the opposite is true. If you are walking in integrity, if you are following Christ as Christ himself walked on this earth, then you can expect some level of mistreatment, some level of being stepped on. And the temptation, when that happens in our lives, is to become bitter about it. It's to even backslide when people mistreat us. We think, hey, life isn't fair. This isn't supposed to happen. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves slipping and sliding and falling spiritually. Because we've been done wrong. So how, then, can we keep walking in our integrity? How can we do right when we've been done wrong. Well, that's what I want to focus on here this morning from this psalm. And I want to give you six steps or six truths, whatever you want to call them. And the very first one here on how to do right when you've been done wrong is to open your heart before the Lord. Open your heart before the Lord. Look what David writes in verse 2. He, he's crying out to God in a prayer. Examine me, O Lord, improve me, try my mind and my heart. David, in other words, is asking God to prove his inner being, to show him, in other words, the, the true condition of his heart when he says, examine me, prove me, try my mind and my heart. And so when you've been done wrong, the very first step in that process is to invite God, ask God to open and see you. Open your heart to him and let him show you the true condition of your heart. Because let's admit it, myself included in this, we're not always honest about what's going on in our hearts, are we? We can live in a state of denial about the true condition of our hearts. In fact, we're pretty slick at justifying and even rationalizing what we feel in our hearts, when, especially in cases when we've been done wrong. And so we need to go before God, open our heart to Him, and kind of let God do an inspection of us. And so notice from even this, when you've been done wrong, I would encourage you from David's words here, ask God, first of all, to search your heart. This phrase, examine me means to search or scrutinize. And the second phrase that David uses, prove me, has a similar emphasis, which means to test or try. And so David is asking God, in other words, to, to make an examination of his heart, to scrutinize him through and through, to find out the true condition of his heart. David wants the Lord, in other words, to confirm for him his integrity and to make him aware of any impure motives in his heart by testing him. It's, it's what David prays later on when he writes Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, when he cries out to the Lord, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting life. So when you've been done wrong, and those feelings start 
surfacing and coming up. Ask God. Go before Him. Open yourself up. Open your heart and ask Him to search your heart. Number two, and it leads to this, ask God to purify your heart then. Ask Him to purify your heart. That third phrase that David uses when he says, try my mind and my heart, it's it means to refine and smelt. It refers to the process of refining gold or silver in a fire. And then you remove the dross or the impurities that surface to the top in the process. And that's what we're asking God to do when we've been done wrong. is to remove from our hearts any impurities that the mistreatment may have surfaced within us. So do you, do you kind of get what David is saying here? When you've been done wrong, open your heart before the Lord. Ask God to search your heart. Ask Him to make you aware of the true condition of your heart because we have this tendency within our human nature to deny the reality of our hearts, to rationalize, to justify our own feelings in our hearts. And so we need to ask God, hey, you search me, you make me aware of it, and then ask Him to purify you, to remove any of those impure motives that we'll get to here in a minute, that the mistreatment may begin to surface within you. In other words, use the wrong that's being done to you as an opportunity to be transparent before the Lord and to confirm your own integrity. The second step to doing right when you've been done wrong is stay focused on God's steadfast love. Stay focused on His love. Look what David writes in verse 3. He says, for God, your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. So when David was wrong, what did he focus on? Well, he focused on God's steadfast love, or it can also be translated unfailing love, loving kindness. He focused on God's love for him, not the wrong being done to him. This verse implies a very subtle yet common temptation that we are all susceptible to. And that temptation is this. In the midst of mistreatment, we doubt God's love for us. What happens when we doubt God's love? For us personally, we start to feel alone. We start to feel a little insecure. We get depressed and defensive. But when we are confident in God's love, confident in His love for us personally, listen, it strengthens you to keep walking in God's truth and to keep doing right when you've been done wrong. Listen, God's love, in other words, needs to serve for us as it served for David as a mental filter by which we view our mistreatment. Why? Because God's love is steadfast. It's unfailing. And if we don't focus on God's love, then we're going to focus on our hurt. And if you focus on your hurt long enough, eventually you will become bitter and backslide. You will do what David's determined not to do. You will slip and you will fall. So stay focused on God's steadfast love for you. When everything within you, humanly speaking, wants to focus on the hurt done to you. The third step of doing right when you've been done wrong is to refuse the temptation to get even. Refuse the temptation to get even. Notice what David writes here in verses 4 and 5. He says, I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, 
that's just another way of t speaking and referring to human beings because we're mortal, right? We die. Nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the congregation or the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. Now, stay with me here because this is where David's pen really begins to prick our conscience like a needle. His words touch a very sensitive nerve here as they expose our heart when wrong. And that is our instinct to retaliate when wrong. Human nature says, defend yourself when wrong. Our culture says, don't get mad, get even when wrong. And so like a rattlesnake coiled within us, our human nature lies ready to strike. Retaliation, it seems, remains one of our favorite sports here in America. Even within our families. And so it's important that when you're in the midst of mistreatment, when you're being done wrong, first of all here, listen to the counsel of the godly, not the ungodly. You say, why is that? Well, the fact of the reason, reason is, or fact of the matter is, you can always find a group of people who will encourage you to retaliate and get even. They seem to be always around. It's amazing how you don't have to look very far for those people. Even believers, or so-called believers. There's never a lack of people around who will say, hey, why are you putting up with that? You've got your rights. Fight back. Don't tolerate that. And this is why David says what he says here in verses 4 and 5. He knows the kind of advice these people give. They give advice based on their own experience, on their own values, rather than on what God's Word has to say. Remember David's mistreatment? King Saul, perhaps, was chasing David down trying to kill him out of jealousy, and I'm sure there were a few friends who encouraged David to retaliate, but David would not listen to those friends. He would not listen to their advice to, quote, get back at Saul, even when David had the opportunity to. In fact, there's a time where David was in a cave, and Saul was there, and he was sleeping. David comes up on him, and he could have killed him right then and there. And David would not retaliate. He would not seek revenge in that instance. Or what about when David's son tried to overtake his throne and kill him? David never listened to the advice of those around him to get even at his son. David understood the importance of what he wrote earlier in Psalm 1, verse 1. Remember that, we studied it, where he said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And he goes on, he says, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So don't listen to the counsel of the ungodly, but rather the godly, not to get even. Which then leads us to the second principle here in the midst of mistreatment. Repay wrong with love, not revenge. Listen, if you want to retaliate, then retaliate with love, not revenge. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans 12, 19 through 20. It says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So do you want to retaliate for being done wrong? Then pay them back with love, God says. And in so doing, God is saying, you will heap burning coals on their head. I would call that's getting even God's way. So when you've been done wrong, listen, first of all, open your heart before the Lord, stay focused on God's steadfast love for you, and then refuse the temptation to get even. Number four, the fourth step or principle, maintain your relationship with God. Maintain your relationship with God. Notice what David writes next in verses 6 and 7. He says, I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar. O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Now, it's like, okay, what in the world is David saying here? Basically, what's going on, David is very concerned. In fact, he is so concerned about his relationship with his God that he talks about this washing his hands of innocence or in innocence and going about the altar. Now, those word pictures, those two word pictures that David uses are very familiar to the Jews of his day. And it refers to the purification process that a priest underwent before approaching the altar in worship. The implication is, without getting into all the history of it, The implication with these two gestures, or symbolic gestures, is that David is focused on his relationship with his God. David wants to stay near the Lord in the midst of his mistreatment. He doesn't want to step back from the Lord. He doesn't want to isolate himself from the Lord. He doesn't want to separate. He wants to stay near the Lord. He wants to make sure his sins are confessed. And his heart is pure. In fact, that phrase, washing of one's hands, became a symbolic act to signify one's innocence. If you saw the Passion movie, or you read the scriptures in Matthew, where Pilate, after he basically lets the crowd have their way with Jesus, you want Barabbas or crucify Jesus? Of course, they yell out, crucify him, crucify him. And what does Pilate do as a symbolic act? Brings out a bowl of water and he washes his hands to signify his innocence of the blood, except he wasn't innocent of it. And that's the idea, what this became symbolic of. And yet, this did not guarantee that the mistreatment suddenly ended for David. By him referring to this, he, in other words, he's affirming to God of his innocence. That he's... he's, He's walked in his integrity. He is in the wrong, I mean in the right here. And yet, it does not guarantee that this mistreatment suddenly ended. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 73, 13 through 14. It says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So don't think that a godly life is always immediately blessed with pleasant circumstances. Just doesn't happen that way. Jesus reminds us of this truth. 
Fast forward to the New Testament. Go to the greatest message ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And here Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you. Gee, thanks Lord. Blessed are you, he goes on, when people persecute you. Falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In other words, blessed are you when you get stepped on for me and my sake, my kingdom, living for me as a Christ follower. In fact, he goes on, he says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, did you notice that David then, he also refers to an attitude of thanksgiving in the midst of all this. Yeah, blow me away. You're like, you got to be kidding he says that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works, Lord. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, just think about it with me. What's the first thing to go out the window when you get hit by some undeserved wrong or unfair criticism? Hey, if you're like me, man, it's, it's, it's the, at the top of the list. It's praise and it's thanksgiving. An attitude of thanksgiving, an attitude of praise. But the Bible reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that the supreme test of an attitude of thanks occurs when we suffer mistreatment. But this is only possible as we maintain our relationship with God. As we stay near to Him. As we wash our hands in innocence. In other words, that we maintain our integrity. That we go about the altar. That is, we're worshiping the Lord. We're, we're staying near in, in maintaining that relationship with the Lord. That's why this is possible. And as we maintain that relationship with the Lord, it's through that power that even in the midst of mistreatment that we can proclaim His praises because He's sustaining us. He's the one that's holding us. He's the one that's allowing us to persevere through that. Even when everything within us wants to retaliate, wants to quit, wants to get away from it all. Which leads us then to the fifth step, to doing right when you've been done wrong. Number five, be faithful in corporate worship. Be faithful in corporate worship. David declares in verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. And so even while David was suffering mistreatment, feeling more like a punching bag than a child of God, he remained faithful to the place where he could sense God's glory, sense God's power on his life, which at that time in the Old Testament was the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt. David writes in Psalm 27, verses 4 through 5, he says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. You see, for David here, especially in the midst of mistreatment, worship was no religious habit. It was no boring duty. It was something essential to his life. It was something vital, especially when he encountered mistreatment. Unfortunately, though, let's be honest, we live in a day and age, in our culture, in our society, when the value of corporate worship is de-emphasized and even marginalized. 
In fact, let's be honest, because David's honest, right? God's searching our hearts anyway, so let's just get it out there. Our natural instinct, human nature within us, when we've been done wrong, when we're stepped on, we naturally want to isolate, separate ourselves, instead of congregate with other Christ followers. Don't, don't miss the emphasis here that David puts on corporate worship. This word habitation means refuge or place of safety. The implication from this is that the house of the Lord is a place of protection. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually. A true sanctuary in which to find rest and peace and strength in order to persevere as a Christ follower in the midst of your mistreatment. The house of the Lord was a place people would go to behold the power of God and the glory of God in order to renew their confidence in an almighty God. Folks, that's what we need week after week as we live in this world of ours. For David, the Lord's house was where he could meet with God. It was where he could renew his strength in order to live for God. And we know from Jesus, I, yes, we know, that G, we can worship God anywhere. Jesus tells us in John chapter 4, 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. However, we also know that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. And there's no better place to draw strength in the face of adversity than among God's people gathered together for worship. Corporate worship is vitally important. And then an extension of corporate worship is in community and groups. And for our church, that's grow groups. In fact, let me just put a plug in. We're going to have sign-ups coming in August here for our fall session of grow groups, which is just a, an extension of corporate worship, but now you can laser in on personal support, encouragement, and growing in your relationship with God. Both are vitally important in our walk with the Lord. We are Hebrews 12 I mean, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 reminds us. It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So when you're being done wrong, be faithful in worship. Don't forsake the encouragement and strength you receive from worshiping together with other believers. The Sixth step in doing right when you've been done wrong, the last one, is to keep walking in your integrity. To keep walking in your integrity. Listen, there's just something about human nature within every one of us that kind of prompts us, almost propels us to take matters into our own hands and to retaliate. Right? I mean, am I the only one on that? Or you can identify. Thank you, Jim. But retali listen to me, but retaliation only incites further retaliation. And in the downward spiral of it, we end up losing our own integrity. David implies that such was the activity of those around him. In fact, it's interesting the phrases he used. He says all sorts of sinister schemes. 
and hands full of bribes were implemented by others, according to verse 10. But not David. He states in verse 11, but as for me, it's emphatic. It's a declaration of contrast. They may be seeking retaliation. They may be giving me that advice, but not me. I will walk in my integrity. David wanted it known that he wasn't going to get involved in those sinister schemes of retaliation and revenge. He doesn't want, in other words, and here's the reason why, he doesn't want to be judged by God Almighty with sinners and bloodthirsty men. In other words, he doesn't want God to gather his soul with their souls at the judgment. Whoa. No way, David says. So what does he say? David says, I will walk in my integrity. He cries out to the Lord, redeem me and be merciful to me. And there's a calmness, there's a confidence in those words. As for his present course of action, David is saying, here's my action right now in the moment. I will walk in my integrity. I will keep walking this way. And as for his line of defense, for those that are mistreating him, he says, Lord, you redeem me. You be merciful to me. I'm depending on you. Look back at that word, redeem, in verse 11, because it's a powerful word. It means to ransom or deliver. It's a term of relief, as if you're in exile. It's the idea of delivering someone from terrible stress and even death. And isn't that what it feels like when you're being stepped on? But who better to deliver you from your mistreatment than God himself? But the key is we must wait patiently for God's redeeming relief. What happens though, again, I can relate to this, I don't know if you can, we get impatient for that relief to come. We want relief now from that mistreatment. We want justice now on those people. We want vindication now. So we take matters into our own hands and we retaliate and in the process we forfeit, we give up our integrity. It may not seem like it in the midst of the mistreatment, but let me tell you, your integrity is worth far more than the taste of revenge. Although revenge may taste sweet initially, it leaves an aftertaste that is bitter, and it soon turns sour. So through David's words here, let me exhort you, don't give up your integrity for revenge. Keep walking in your integrity. Wait patiently for God's redeeming relief. Let me tell you, it is always worth it. But perhaps you're not so sure. We'll notice the end here, the result of doing right when you've been done wrong. You will stand on level ground instead of sliding on a slippery terrain. David concludes in verse 12, he says, My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations I will bless the Lord. And now we have come full circle in this psalm. You go back to verse 1, and what does David say? Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip, he says. And now in verse 12, he declares, My foot stands in an even place. In the congregation, I will bless the Lord. Do you see what the Lord is now doing for David? 
in the midst of this mistreatment, David puts his trust in the Lord. And he determines that he will not slip. That is, he will not waver. He will not backslide. He will not retaliate. But he will wait patiently for God's redeeming relief. His confidence, in other words, is in the Lord's ability to keep him and uphold him even when he feels like his life is slipping away. And so David uses this image of his foot standing on level ground to signify that his faith is firm in his God as opposed to his faith slipping. Why? Because his confidence, his trust is in the Lord to be the one to vindicate him. Here's the point. Let me summarize it this way. And we'll be done. When we trust God and we keep walking in our integrity, we will always have level ground to stand on and build our life on. But when we don't trust God, when we take matters into our own hands, when we don't keep our integrity, when we retaliate, we are walking on steep, slippery terrain, and we are sure to fall sooner or later. Let me encourage you this morning through this psalm. Like David, when you've been done wrong, trust God. Keep walking in your integrity, and you will stand on level ground that God will give for you. Let's pray. As we come to our response time, and before we have a word of prayer, as the Zach and the praise team come and, and, and sing just a chorus. Let me ask you a few questions. Here's just a, a couple of questions to consider in application here. If you've been done wrong, have you completely released that offense to God? Or are you still holding on to that hurt and that offense? Are you holding a grudge against someone for mistreating you? Are you scheming in your heart for ways to retaliate and get revenge. Listen, let me encourage you to trust God. Ask Him to vindicate you. Ask God for the grace, His grace, His power to wait patiently on Him for His redeeming relief. Ask Him for the help, His mercy for you to keep walking in your integrity. Let me encourage you to respond in prayer right where you're seated. Take it to the Lord in prayer as Zach and the praise team sings. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for the words of David here. May you take these words and pierce our hearts. May your spirit do a work as only he can do. We pray these things in your name. Amen.